welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. Please continue enjoying your lunch today. For our online audience, you can send in your questions to Hudson Events. What's the? Hudson Events. Hudson Events is the Twitter handle for any kind of questions you might like to ask. A couple of housekeeping things. Two events that are coming up in the coming weeks are on May 23rd, we have Marsha Blackburn, Chairman of the House Communications Subcommittee of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, will be our speaker. On June 6th, D-Day, Tom Hazlett, Professor of Economics at Clemson University, will be here to speak about his new book on Spectrum. But today, we are extraordinarily honored to have with us Ron Cass, who is Dean Emeritus of Boston University Law School, also previously Chairman of the International Trade Commission, an extraordinary scholar in areas of administrative law and other international law and in lots of interesting areas. And he was just telling me he's working on a number of papers, all of which seemed delightful. But today he's going to speak with us about the administrative state. And I can't wait to hear what Ron Cass has to say about the administrative state. Well, thank you, Harold. It's a delight to be here. I have to start not by going directly to the administrative state, but by recounting an experience I had recently. I'm a native Washingtonian, which I don't reveal in public very often, and was walking around northwest Washington between errands a few weeks ago. Remember back before the Cherry Blossom Festival, we had those few days that were just beautiful days. We try to have those right before the Cherry Blossom Festival and then get rid of the good weather for a period of time. And I saw a fellow walking around who had maybe a dozen ducks behind him that were following him like he was the mother duck. I went up to him and said, do you realize you have a bunch of ducks behind you? He said, I know they've been following me around all day. I don't know what to do about it. And I said, you know, we were in Northwest Washington. We were on Connecticut Avenue. I said, why don't you take them to the zoo? It's a great idea. Later on in the day, I saw the same guy still with all the ducks behind him. And I said, you didn't like my suggestion? He said, no, it was a great suggestion. We went to the zoo. Now we're going to go to the movies. <laughs> in life, sometimes there are problems that are pretty obvious to everybody outside the problem and solutions that are also pretty obvious to everybody outside the problem. But once you're inside it, you may not quite understand what the issues are or what the instructions are that you've been given. We have that sort of issue with government. America, the United States, was founded on the notion that we would have limited government that could do jobs that we needed to have done collectively, but not a government that would have the sort of power 
that would threaten our liberties. So it was not just a size constraint on government that those who framed the Constitution had in mind. It was also a nature of power constraint. They didn't want anyone to have a large amount of discretionary power. So they adopted a framework for government that was designed to separate powers and check powers and constrain the authority of any government official to exercise the sort of discretion that would be a risk to our liberties, that could take away our lives, our property, uh, our liberty in a way that would be threatening and not done through procedures, through mechanisms that would keep this in check. When Madison wrote Federalist 51, one of the things he said in there was that they had sort of a two-part problem in framing a constitution. The first was to develop a system that would enable the government to control the people in ways in which it needed to, to effectively govern. The second problem was to structure things so the government could constrain itself. We wanted to have checks on who was in power and how power was exercised. And if you look at the Constitution, if you ever see it as just one document rather than the way we usually see it today, what's really striking about it is that Article I, which deals with Congress, takes up almost the entire document. Everything else after that is much smaller. And this isn't a case, those of you who have seen the, the old cartoons, says plan ahead and starts with a huge P, L, and then the letters get smaller, and by the time you get to the D at the end, it's falling off the page. This wasn't a case of the framers not thinking ahead, getting tired after they debated the first article. They thought that constraining Congress, keeping what Congress did in check, was the most important thing because that was where the big power was. That was the power to adopt laws. So we have, unlike the rest of government, we have it subdivided in different groups. We have people in Congress elected in different ways for different time periods from different constituencies. And they have to work together, the Senate and the House, and they have to get the concurrence of the president. So we've made lawmaking very difficult. We have a whole bunch of constraints on what sort of laws Congress can make. Well, that's pretty much gone by the wayside. And we now have a government which is much bigger and does much more on much more complicated subjects that were initially thought to be outside the, the national government's realm. In 1800 and 1900, the governments in the United States, including federal, state, and local, accounted for about 4% of gross national product. By 2000, that was about 40%. And what had happened in part was that we lost the will to maintain the constraints on the government. We lost it in a series of steps and a series of decisions. But some of these steps were within the control 
of judges. They weren't things where Congress just went off on a toot and the people were not willing to constrain. Judges actually had the power to rein Congress in and chose not to. One of the steps which is better known is the abandonment of the constraint that when Congress regulates commerce, it only regulates interstate commerce, commerce between the states, between America and other nations, and in the Constitution they also had between the, among the Indian tribes and the states. That notion that Congress dealt with interstate and international issues, but not with anything that was intrastate, was abandoned by the Supreme Court, which essentially authorized Congress to regulate anything that dealt with any form of commerce, anything you could call commerce, and anything that might have an interstate impact. Broadly construed, everything has an interstate impact. But even after doing that, there were two big checks that were available on government. One was what sort of powers Congress had to exercise itself. Obviously, when you look at people in Congress, they run for election. They're sensitive to the votes that they need to get to be elected and to remain in office. That's a pretty big check on what Congress does. And the need, anyone who's looking right now at debates over health care reform or tax reform understands how difficult it is to get things done through Congress. It's difficult because people in Congress represent different constituencies. They have different terms of office. They don't have the same views on what good policy is. And you need to get majorities in both the House and the Senate to agree, and you need to get the President to agree. It's not that easy to do. You know, here you have the House having voted something like 60 times to repeal Obamacare, and now they've got a chance to repeal it. And it's tough. It's tough getting agreement on that. So one of the things that was very important in the framing of the Constitution was to make sure that the legislative power, the power to make laws, was vested in the Congress, not anyone else. The power to actually implement the laws was vested in the executive branch, not just in the president. The president was the head of the executive branch, but it's interesting, while Congress is given the legislative authority and the courts created under Article Three are given the judicial authority, the president and the executive branch are given the power to execute the laws. The president isn't told to execute them. He's given the responsibility to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. It was understood. He'd have people working for him doing a lot of that stuff. But Congress had to write the laws, the executive implemented them, and the courts were supposed to interpret them. They were supposed to decide disputes and when a dispute concerned the law, they were supposed to decide the law. In Marbury against Madison back in 1803, when Chief Justice John Marshall says why it is that the courts get to say what the law is, it's because 
That's what the dispute's about. The dispute is about the law and whether the law is a statute, a regulation, or a provision in the Constitution. If it's wrapped up in an actual case in court, the courts get to say what the law is. Well, those two notions, the notion that Congress writes the laws and nobody else does, and that courts are responsible for interpreting the laws whenever the laws are wrapped up in a case before them. Both of those notions have been essentially eviscerated in practical terms. And let me start first with the notion of delegation. Congress, in writing laws, is supposed to make the big decisions. Obviously, there are some matters that you can make a decision on and other people have to do the detail work. And that's been true from the very beginning. In the Constitution, there's a provision for creating a seat of the federal government. There was a real fight in Congress and in the popular press over where the seat of government should be. There was a fight in part because people knew that wherever the government was located, people around there would have more influence on it. Well, this fight resulted in finally a decision from Congress that they would carve out territory along the Potomac, really in the middle geographically of the country, but not in the middle in terms of where the population was at the time. Congress passed what was called the Residency Act in 1789 and created a commission to pin down exactly where it would be. But it, it in writing the act, had already told them all the important questions. It had resolved it would be along the Potomac, would be between these particular branches of the Potomac. So it was quite carefully cabined to be where it is today. And then the commissioners got to actually parcel it out and decide where the buildings for the government would be. All the important decisions were made by Congress. The little stuff was given to the executive branch. The same thing with respect to how courts would work. Again, in 1789, Congress passed the Judiciary Act. It decided what courts we would have, how they would be constituted. It made under the Constitution, the provisions for what sort of judiciary we would be having determine the interpretation of the laws and resolving disputes. But then it gave to the courts the ability to write court rules. So how the papers have to, you know, what the page limits are, what sort of submissions are made, you know, how you appear before the judges, those sort of things weren't big issues that were important to protecting liberty. They were housekeeping matters, and the courts got control over that. Well, that was the notion we had up until 1928. Now, in 1928, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was somebody who was a little more friendly to executive power than your typical judge. It was William Howard Taft, who had been President of the United States before he was Chief Justice 
of the Supreme Court, and he wrote a decision, the J.W. Hampton case. He wrote a decision saying that what really mattered was that important things could be done by the president, and what Congress had to do was just give an intelligible principle in a law. And once you understood what the principle was, then it was up to the executive branch to actually do the hard work of governing. Since 1928, the Supreme Court has twice, and only twice, found that a law lacked an intelligible principle. So if you say to somebody, regulate communications as the public interest, convenience, and necessity require, which isn't actually what the law says, but as the court interpreted it, that's what it came to mean, that's an intelligible principle. If you say, set prices so they're just and reasonable, that's an intelligible principle. If you say, do what's good for America, that's an intelligible, almost anything is found to be an intelligible principle these days. So what happened in 1928 was we abandoned the effort to keep Congress writing laws. These days we have 180,000 pages or so in the Federal Code of Regulations. Those are rules written by people who are not in Congress. They're written by administrators, and a lot of those rules are criminally enforceable, and a lot of them regulate the conduct of ordinary people in very important ways. Second thing we abandoned was the notion that courts would actually seriously oversee the meaning of the laws. In the Administrative Procedure Act, which was written in the 1940s, the law says that courts will decide on the meaning of statutory provisions, regulations, constitutional provisions. Essentially, they'll do their job of interpreting the law. Except, if an administrator is given discretion over something by law, if I say that the, the commissioners of the Federal Communications Commission can determine where to put broadcast stations. And I've given them discretion to select how we want to carve up the allocation of broadcast stations. Then all the courts do is they check that to make sure it's reasonable and that it doesn't go outside the bounds of the discretion committed by law. That's what the APA says, the Administrative Procedure Act. That was the understanding of the law up until 1984. In 1984, in a case that is uh, Chevron against the National uh, Resource uh, Defense Council, Chevron said essentially the same thing in different words. They, what they said was, look, if the law is clear on the matter, you, know, you can use traditional means to determine what the law is. If the law is clear, you do what the law says. But if the law seems to give discretion, either because it says that, or because it uses terms that are ambiguous enough that it seems to give discretion to the agency that's implementing it, then you just make sure that what the agency does is reasonable and is consistent with the law. Well, that, that instruction sounds a lot like 
the agency can exercise policy discretion within the ambit of what Congress gives it to do. And there's a lot in the Chevron case, which deals with the Clean Air Act. There's a lot in the case that emphasizes that the Environmental Protection Agency has made policy decisions on whether it wants to regulate the source of pollution based on an entire factory or each smokestack within a factory. It can do either one. And it chose, in that case, to do it on an entire factory basis. Court said, that's fine. That's reasonable. You can do that. But the way John Paul Stevens wrote the opinion said that if the law was clear on the point in issue, then the court would do whatever the law said. And if it wasn't, then it would defer to the agency. It would give discretion to the agency. It would give deference to what the agency decided the law meant, as long as the agency was reasonable. The court didn't mean that it would defer to the agency on what the law meant. It meant that when the law gave the agency discretion, it would defer to the agency on its exercise of discretion within the bounds of the law. It meant what the Administrative Procedure Act said. It said it the wrong way. Since then, a lot of judges and a lot of justices have interpreted the precedent of Chevron to mean that you defer to the agency when the agency is being reasonable about its interpretation of law. It's quite wrong. I said in one panel discussion that there was a different sort of deference known as Skidmore deference, which meant that you deferred if you kind of liked what the agency did. And I said on the panel that it's the difference between what I give my wife and what she gives me. I give her Chevron deference. We're going to do things her way because she says it's her way, and I know that's the way it's going to be in the end, so I defer to that. She gives me Skidmore deference, which means if I say we should do what she wants us to do, then she defers to me. Well, what the courts did from 1984 on is they created a form of deference that's like what I give my wife. That isn't what the law should be. It's not what the Constitution says. It's what the marriage contract says, but it's not what the Constitution says, and it's not what courts should do. So having done this, we've now empowered Congress to give a lot of authority over our lives to agencies, and we've given the agencies authority to do what they want regardless of what Congress has said, unless they violate it blatantly. Those two things put our liberty at risk in ways that the framers never could have imagined, and that is at odds with the document they wrote. And my advice is that, like dealing with the guy in the ducks, we should understand that simple instructions were given to resolve a problem, and we should go back and try to recapture the understanding of the problem and the nature of the instructions and make sure that we enforce rules that make Congress really write the laws, make the important decisions, that let the agencies carry them into effect, but that have the courts review what the agencies have done when there's a dispute 
and make sure that they've obeyed the law. And with that, I will turn it over back to you, Harold. Well, thank you very much. Um, fascinating talk. How do we get there from here? How do we get the genie back in the bottle? How do we get back to a situation where uh, um, agencies that, that Congress has the responsibility and they simply haven't delegated all responsibility to these faceless bureaucrats at, at agencies? Well, the first thing is I think we need to take a look again. There's something known as the delegation or non-delegation doctrine, which says that Congress really needs to make certain decisions. There's a version of it that John Marshall uh, enunciated back in the 1800s. And there's a, a version of it that I told you that Chief Justice Taft announced 100 years later. I think we need to go back to John Marshall's version. And I think we can do that. It doesn't mean striking down every delegation of authority because what's being delegated is not legislative authority. What's delegated is authority to implement the law. And as long as the important decision is made by Congress, we can have people implement the law. We can have benefits administration. Congress doesn't have to say, okay, you get your benefits and you don't. And we don't need Article Three courts to resolve every issue of administration of government. But we do need to make sure that the important decisions are made by the legislature and the construction of the laws when they're in dispute is done by Congress. For the first time in my lifetime, which I regret to say is quite long at this point, we have three members of the Supreme Court who believe in reinvigorating the non-delegation doctrine. And I think if judges are appointed to the courts of appeals who also believe in that. We will start getting cases that apply this doctrine. There was one from the uh, DC Circuit that was written by Steve Williams back in the 1990s. We can see more of those and I think things will percolate up to a point where we have uh, a willingness to begin considering this and if we have more justices appointed who also believe in taking a look at the Constitution as if it means what it says, I think that would be a step in that direction. As to Chevron, a lot of people have been concerned about Chevron, uh, liberals as well as conservatives, Republicans and Democrats alike, because they're concerned that it gives away, under one reading of it, power courts should have, and a lot of judges, are concerned about that. They may not all be concerned in the same cases. Some judges want to defer in cases where they kind of like what the Environmental Protection Agency did or the FCC did. Um, I, I know that's a limited class of cases. Other judges want to defer in cases where they like what was done by other agencies. But I think we'll begin to see enough concern about Chevron from enough quarters then we'll see a movement to uh, change what it is. The movement will have two different parts, however. One part will say, let's create a multi-factor test. I don't like multi-factor tests. Uh, I have limited brain capacity. So 
if you say to me, line up in alphabetical order by height, I have a little bit trouble figuring out how to do that. I can line up in, you know, by height. I can line up in alphabetical order. But if you give me several instructions that don't necessarily mean anything together, I have trouble doing that. There are Supreme Court justices who are much smarter than I am, and they can make sense of multi-factor tests. Um, we'll also have some people who want a simpler test that simply says, if discretion is given under the law, we respect that to the limits of the discretion, and if it's not, we make the decision. And I think you'll see more justices starting to evolve in that direction. You were telling me you're working on a paper that's comparing some of the uh, views of Manning and Scalia. Could you tell us about that? Two of my friends, uh, two of my very close friends, were Henry Manning, who was uh, the founder of the Center for Law and Economics and for uh, quite a, a few years the dean at George Mason School of Law, which is now the Scalia uh, Law School. And uh, Nino Scalia, Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, was a friend for almost uh, 40 years. They had uh, two different views, two radically different views, on constitutional interpretation. Now, this was not uh, the forte of, of Henry Manny, but Henry did have some uh, thoughts on it, and he gave a talk on it in Guatemala in uh, the mid-1990s and wrote a paper on it and gave a talk on that at the University of Chicago. Henry's view was that what really mattered was power, and particularly the relative amounts of power given to the different parts of the government, the states and the federal government, the Congress and the executive, and that what constitutional interpretation ought to be about was keeping the relative grants of power that the Constitution gave, keeping them as constant as we could. And they would be disrupted by changes in technology, by changes in our economy. There are a number of things that could account for changes in the actual power exercised by different entities. For instance, he, he would say that you know, the, the power to regulate commerce was very different when we didn't have easy means of communication and transportation. That power became much larger when we did. So we, we needed rebalancing under Henry's views. Uh, Nino's view, um, I don't know how many of you play bridge, but um, in, in bridge, I, I played very briefly in college before the three guys I was playing bridge with flunked out. Um, the, uh, in Bridge, there are conventions of, of what you sort of say when you really want your partner to pick up on what you have in your hand. I was more the plain vanilla. I would say what I had in my hand, which turned out not to be great Bridge strategy, but it, it was the only way I, I could do things. You know, If I wanted to bid three hearts, I'd bid three hearts. I wouldn't bid one and hope you understood I meant three. And I think that Nino's view of constitutional analysis was pretty much my view of how to play bridge. It was, you look at what the document says. You ask what it was understood to mean at the time people said it. And you did that, whatever that was. You, you, the same way you would with a contract. Uh, if the contract says, I owe you $100, 
I'm going to give you $100 in a year. We mean a year under the calendar we're using now, not a year under some different calendar. Uh, we mean $100 in actual currency. We don't mean $100 in the equivalents in Zimbabwean currency. Um, it's like dealing with the guy in the ducks. When I said go to the zoo, I meant and leave the ducks at the zoo. And, and that was, was uh, Nino's view. I think his view is a view that is easier to implement. And if you're giving the job to judges, I have great respect for judges. Some of my best friends are judges. Um, I, if you're giving the job to judges, you ought to make it simple and understandable and not depend on complicated analysis. One of my uh, friends who's a judge, when uh, one of his daughters was very young, she was asked uh, in uh, elementary school, what does your daddy do? And she said, well, my mommy's a doctor. And the teacher said, yes, okay, what, what does your daddy do? She was quiet for a minute and said, I don't know, but he wears a dress to work. Well, speaking of judges, you, uh, your, your solution to the delegation problem is uh, in, in large part to repopulate the judiciary with uh, reserved uh, views of delegation. Um, is there also uh, a solution based on populating the executive branch with people with a reserve view of what they should be doing? Well, certainly when you have people in the executive branch who believe strongly in the ability to write laws, you have a different set of outcomes than you do when the executive is more cabined in his and his folks' understanding. Um, Ed Levy, who was dean at the University of Chicago and then president of the university and then attorney general, uh, was fond of saying it is far better for Congress to act judiciously than for judges to act legislatively. And I think the same thing is true in terms of the executive branch, if you have people who are more cabined in terms of their sense of their own authority. But that only goes so far because there are action-forcing laws where essentially Congress gives a mandate to the executive to go out and write laws. And if that's what's being done, I think you can't depend on the executive and shouldn't depend on the executive to say, well, I just don't feel like obeying that law. I think you have to depend on a case coming to the courts where the judges then say that law goes beyond what Congress can do. You're describing two types of scenarios. One is where Congress consciously delegates a lot to an agency, and the agency says, oh, we have no choice. We have to go off and, and do something that Congress told us to do. Uh, my experience with the FCC is a, a different scenario, which is uh, Congress is completely silent about doing something. The agency goes off and does it with the expectation that courts are going to say Chevron deference and they're going to get away with it. Uh, so those are, uh, there are a lot of times Chevron comes into this. Uh, so uh, 
Could you tell us a bit about the distinction between where Congress consciously goes too far and Chevron gets invoked and other times where Congress doesn't intend something to happen and the agency still goes off and does something? Well, the FCC is a perfect illustration. Uh, and in the act, the, the FCC was uh, created out of a combination of two statutes. Uh, one was the old Federal Radio Act of 1927, and the other was a, a set of laws dealing with the regulation of common carriage and particularly the application of that to telephone and telegraph companies. And those two sets of laws were merged in 1934 in the Communications Act and the creation of the FCC, which was essentially a continuation of the old Federal Radio Commission. One of the instructions there in Title III is for the FCC to allocate uh, radio broadcast stations as it will see fit to enhance fair and efficient communications. And then it's told, once it's done that, to hand out licenses to radio broadcasters as the public interest, convenience, and necessity require. Now, what was understood at the time was that Congress was giving the FCC, and before that the FRC, the authority to divide up the portion of the spectrum that broadcasters could use and decide how big or little the station's broadcast scope should be. Should we have a lot of small stations, in which case you couldn't receive very many in any location because there'd be overlapping signals that need separation of the, the signals, and any local station would potentially interfere with stations all around it? Or did you want fewer stations total and more stations that could be received in any area because they had more national or regional scope. That decision was given to the FCC to make and to decide exactly how it could allocate stations under either framework. Once it did it, it was told, pick people to operate the stations as people come forward and say, I want to operate a station say, is this the right person? Is this the right station? Is it in the right spot? If I give it to you in uh, Bethesda, does it create a problem in Chevy Chase and Silver Spring and Northwest DC? So that authority was well understood. So was the authority to regulate rates for the common carriers by wire, the telegraph and telephone company. But beginning in the 1940s, what the Supreme Court did was it let the FCC use the authority it had to pick stations as the public interest required and turn that into a general authority to regulate broadcasting as the public interest required. And then in the 1960s, when the FCC, having failed to get legislation giving it authority to regulate cable television, when the FCC decided it had that authority all along, 
The Supreme Court said, well, I guess you do. Because if you don't, then maybe you can't do everything you want with respect to broadcasting. From that point, all bets were off. The FCC now uh, thinks it has authority to regulate, uh, I, I should say now, uh, up until the last few months, thought it had authority to regulate the Internet, having failed to get direct authority from Congress to, to do that. So we have a series of times, as, as you've experienced directly and as you've seen in observing uh, other agencies as well, we have a series of times when the courts have let the agencies get away with doing what they shouldn't under the law, and when clearly the law hasn't deputized the agency to do something. It shouldn't. The agency has simply claimed that authority. And in cases like that, Chevron deference, if interpreted as letting the agency make up the law, is a problem. The courts have allowed agencies to do things they shouldn't, but they were doing that before Chevron as well. Uh, Frankfurter's opinion in the national broadcasting case in, what was it, 1941? 43, yeah. You know, that, that one uh, did uh, as much damage to the Communications Act as anything since. You're, you're quite right. The idea of agencies inventing the laws is not a, not a new idea. Um, let's open it up for a few questions from the audience. I, I could keep speaking with you all day, and I probably will, but uh, let, let me not monopolize the questions here. Uh, please identify yourself, uh, the gentleman in the back. I'm going to give you a microphone. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm Richard Pearson. Um, uh, I guess I'm part of the problem because I'm an administrative law judge with a fairly small, obscure agency. But um, uh, my experience... Which one? Uh, Federal Labor Relations Authority. Uh, narrow though my experience may be is uh, not at all like you're describing. Um, uh, the courts are constantly um, evaluating the, uh, uh, the reviewing the decisions that my agency makes, um, and they don't have any trouble telling us when uh, we've. Um, misinterpreted the statute that we're um, charged with enforcing. Um, they, they give the agency deference uh, when, the, uh, uh, when they determine that the law or the section of the law that we're interpreting is, um, uh, is ambiguous or um, allows for that type of interpretation, but if they think that the agency has gone beyond what the meaning of the statute is, they're routinely striking our decisions down. Um, and my understanding, again, limited as it is uh, with some other agencies, is they are also struck down fairly routinely. The courts don't seem to have any problem telling them when they've gone too far. So um, I, I guess I would ask you uh, maybe if you could give us some examples uh, beyond the FCC, um, which may be an extreme 
situation by itself in that it, uh, its statute dates back to the prehistoric era. But um, for a lot of the other agencies, can you give us some examples of, of where there have been abuses, where the courts have uh, um, ignored uh, uh, Chevron or ignored the Constitution? Well, first of all, thank you for the question. I appreciate it. And the, if you look at the data on the judicial review of agency decisions, there are different studies of it, but they come up with figures that have the affirmance rate for the government decision at anywhere from 75% to 90-something percent. So the, the routine across the great bulk of decisions is to have the courts uphold what the government does. Um, some cases, now being an administrative law judge, you probably deal with more cases that are um, not the normal small case. Uh, there, if, if you compare what the administrative law judges and administrative judges in agencies do. Um, there are a lot of agencies that have judges that are not appointed the way you were, but together those two groups are about 6,000 people. The Article Three judiciary is about 870, so it's a, it's a very different uh, size. Uh, the Article Three judges are likely on things they see as uh, routine matters to be even more deferential than they are in a few matters that they're particularly uh, concerned about. But even on matters that come up to the uh, Court of Appeals, the overwhelming majority get deference from the courts. If, you, if you're looking for an example of an occasion when I think there's a deference given where it shouldn't be, let me give you a case that went up to the Supreme Court in the 1990s called uh, Sweet Home um, I can't remember what the, what the exact name was. It was a uh, set of communities that were in the Pacific Northwest that dealt with um, protection of one of the species there. And Babbitt was the um, head of the interior uh, at the time, and the suit was against him. And the, uh, the deference was on the interpretation of a term in the law that dealt with the taking of animals, which was understood at the time the law was written. This is the um, Endangered Species Act. Uh, it was understood at the time to mean actually capturing an endangered species, as in addition to shooting, killing, or maiming, there were a number of other things that were included in the law. So if you know, for instance, I went and captured a bald eagle and took it home. I would violate the law the same way I would if I shot it. Um, I'll come back to, to that in, in a moment. But the way the uh, department interpreted the law was that taking involved any action that potentially caused any harm. And what the court said was, okay, close enough. Um, I think that is deferring, and it invokes Chevron deference on, I think that's deferring on agency interpretation of the law, which is not something 
that's given to the discretion of the agency, in this case by law. So I, I would view that as a misapplication of both what Chevron was intended to do, understood to do, what the framework of the Administrative Procedure Act does, and what the right roles are under the Constitution. Just quickly follow up. Um, These studies on um, judicial deference to agencies, are there differences in deference in terms of um, rulemaking proceedings for an agency such as the FCC, which is almost all rulemakings, versus an agency that might be more uh, enforcement actions or adjudications between two parties or uh, some uh, administrative actions? There are differences between the two, but even when you have review of rules, it comes out overwhelmingly, and again, you know, over 70% affirming the agency's rulemaking. But, you know, if you, if you ask, you know, sort of the follow-up, what about really big rules versus, you know, kind of more routine? Uh, I don't have data on that. Well, I have gut instinct, which is obviously better than data. And, and, and that is, um, as long as it's my gut, um, it, and that is that, that when you have really big contentious rules, there's a lot lower likelihood of deference. There's a lot more likelihood that the court will say, wait a minute, um, this can't be what's going on here. There's a version of Chevron known as major questions Chevron. And this comes out of two cases uh, in the 90s, the Brown Williamson tobacco case and the American trucking case. Um, uh, let me just deal with Brown Williamson because that's the easiest one to, to identify. The FDA uh, decided after decades of saying it had no authority to regulate tobacco, uh, decided, yeah, it did. It had it all along, the same way the FCC had authority over cable television. And the um, the uh, we can do this together. This is yes, sir. You know, we're on, on the same plane here. Um, the the FDA decided that nicotine was a drug and cigarettes, tobacco uh, was a drug delivery device. Now the Supreme Court, when this finally got up to the, the court, looked at this and basically said, "Are you kidding me? You really think?" That's what people did back when the uh, food, uh, Federal Food uh, Drug and Cosmetic Act was uh, passed. Uh, you don't think there would have been a fight over this? You don't think the fact that they were subsidizing tobacco at the same time, that they killed any effort over you know, a hundred-year period to regulate tobacco, that they were doing everything they could to promote tobacco? You don't think maybe that there would have been a conflict there? Somebody would have said something? Uh, the second case uh, that involved this, uh, American Trucking against Whitman, uh, there's a line in uh, the opinion for the court that uh, was written by Justice Scalia where he said, you don't hide elephants in mouse holes. The presumption has to be if there's something big that's changing, somebody's going to say it. It's not going to just kind of sneak it through under uh, the table there. So. Um, when you have really big things, the courts are more likely to take a hard look at it and not think that there has been deference on that point unless that there has been discretion delegated to the agency, unless the, the law says that pretty clearly. 
Gentleman in the red tie. Raphael Danziger, I'm a consultant. My question is to do with foreign And I think today it's an axiom, more or less, that other than uh, allocating funds, as well as the much-ignored power to declare war, basically administration has the exclusive power to make foreign policy. Is it something that has always been like that since uh, the framers decided, or is it uh, also an evolution over the years that more or less uh, went to uh, the executive branch? Thank you. Well, foreign policy is something that has a lot of different pieces to it. Uh, the president has always had the authority to recognize other countries, to recognize the ambassadors, to accredit them, uh, to de make decisions on various aspects of our interaction with the officials of other nations, uh, and to make certain decisions respecting how we would position ourselves. Uh, he also has the commander-in-chief authority over uh, the implementation of our armed forces, the uh, distribution, the dissemination, the use of the armed forces. But Congress has the power to make rules for the Army and Navy. They have the power to raise funds. They have the power to equip the military. They have the power to declare war. They have the power to set certain aspects of foreign policy by law. And there have been fights between uh, the president and the Congress on where those lines are drawn. Certainly, immigration laws are written by the Congress. The president doesn't have unilateral authority to make decisions on immigration contrary to the law. So, yes, the president has separate authority in the military and foreign affairs zone from the authority that Congress has. Uh, he has some authority given by Article II of the Constitution, but it is not freestanding authority, entirely independent in all respects from what Congress uh, can do. Just following up on that, uh, in recent years, it seems that there are a lot of agreements between countries or among countries that previously would have been counted as a treaty, but which the executive has decided, well, I can't get the votes in the Senate, so I'm going to call it uh, an executive agreement or some other term like that. Uh, and uh, the courts, have the courts addressed this? Uh, or, I mean, the, the Iran deal, the, the Paris environmental agreement immediately come to mind like that. Well, anything that is an agreement of that sort can bind the executive so far as the executive has discretion over something to interpret things, do things in a certain way. So if Congress gives the executive the authority to regulate greenhouse gases, the president can say, I want to regulate it the way this agreement says we should. And as long as that's not outside the bounds of the discretion. But the president can't bind the United States unilaterally. And Congress can't bind us to international accords by enacting something by both houses of Congress. It can adopt domestic legislation and 
the domestic legislation can mirror what an international accord is. But if it's going to enact a treaty, it's got to do it by a supermajority vote of the Senate. And we've lost kind of, so we've kind of blurred the lines on this, among other things. When we, uh, trade has always been contentious. Um, the, the first law of the first Congress, um, what we did was we adopted a, an oath of office for everybody. Uh, the second was a trade agreement. The first substantive law was a trade agreement. It was highly contentious, and trade has been contentious ever since. Uh, when I was at the International Trade Commission, people said we had no constituency because nobody liked what we did. Um, Demo uh, the Republicans didn't like it because it was international, and Democrats didn't like it because it was trade. Um, either way, uh, it's a contentious issue. Over time, the practice has developed of signing agreements where both houses of Congress deputize parts of the delegation to go negotiate it, and both houses of Congress adopt legislation that implements it, and it never gets passed as a treaty. Well, the fact that it never gets passed as a treaty means we don't have an international agreement. The fact that it gets passed as a law and signed by the president means we have domestic legislation. The domestic legislation may be exactly word for word what the international agreement is. It, it turns out not to be, uh, but it may be that. And if it is, it means whatever the meaning was understood to be in the United States at the time, not what was understood to be in Paris or London or Berlin or Tokyo or Beijing, but it was understood to be here because it's legislation and it ought to be treated as legislation. There are different rules for treaties. There's a, a treaty on treaties, the Vienna Convention on the Interpretation of Treaties, and that tells you how those are interpreted for international law purposes. That's not the same as asking what the impact of a law is here in the United States under the Constitution. Uh, John here. My name is uh, Mike Irochus. I'm formerly with DOD or, and DOS. Can you talk about executive orders? Um, you know, Congress, when the president issues an executive order, sometimes it appears to be a law. And I know when Congress passes a law, the president has to either veto it or, or, or sign it. Does Congress have any obligation to review the executive order that the president issues and either ratify it or, or attempt to veto it? Well, as a matter of, of constitutional law, if what the president does goes outside his authority under Article Two, then it ought not to be binding. The president can certainly tell people in the administration because they work for him. Uh, there isn't any part of the Constitution that says we can set up executive officials who don't work for the president. Um, the the president can tell the people working for him, here's what I want you to do. And insofar as it's consistent with law, he can do that. So he can issue a signing statement saying, here's how I'm going to interpret the law. He can issue an executive order saying, here's how I want people working for me 
to do things. And as long as it's consistent with his authority under Article 2 and authority given to him by law to implement the laws, it's fine. It's when he does things that are outside either the Constitution or the scope of authority under the law that it ought to be declared a nullity. Now, Congress doesn't have to review everything the president does and pass a law saying he shouldn't have done that. But if I'm sitting in Congress and the president's going off saying, well, I can't get legislation uh, to write the bill that I want. I can't get it through Congress. So I'm just going to do it by fiat. Um, and I'm talking here the Latin fiat, not the auto. Um, I, I think that the courts should strike it down when it comes before them. And if I'm sitting in Congress, I want a law passed that says that's not right. But usually, if the president can't get a law passed, people who are opposing him have trouble too. So it's a complicated thing, which is why I think courts ought to be doing their job in striking things down that don't fit the constitutional scheme. Time for one more question. Stan Sienkiewicz, uh, across the street, AID. Um, just to extend the conversation on foreign policy a little bit, uh, we in the foreign policy world, in fact, live in a continuing interaction with the Congress, a daily interaction with the Congress on activities, um, and that's within the realm of appropriations and appropriations-related supervision. Um, an appropriations bill is an annual process. It says you, the president, shall do this and you may not do that in fairly precise terms, and often that's enough and we do or we don't. Um, but as you just suggested, I think often it's difficult to get all those people up there to agree to such clear direction and guidance. And so what we get uh, are even less than the equivalent of signing statements. We get observations in one house report or the other house report, or maybe in the statement of managers, which reflects both houses. Um, it turns out that the Agency for International Development has been operating for now three years running under a uh, hiring freeze. The hiring freeze results from an in-passing observation originally three years ago in the House subcommittee's report to the effect that, oh, by the way, there's no money here for any new hiring above attrition, period, full stop. Uh, so that essentially creates a binding. I mean, if we spend money technically hiring above attrition, I mean, we've broken the law. The president goes and signs that appropriation bill. Or have we broken the law? Anyway, here's the subject. If you'd like to make some observations on that, I would love to hear insights. Well, first of all, in your comment about what uh, is written in the reports, um, the reports of the committees aren't passed by Congress. Uh, people in Congress almost never read the committee reports. And for those who have read committee reports, with good reason, I might add. Um, it's kind of like a, a law review article has been through a food processor. Um, and, and so what's in the committee reports provides a good historical set of information 
about what people writing the reports wanted you to see. It doesn't provide any guidance to what Congress did. The law provides Congress guidance as to what Congress did. It did actually pass the law. It didn't pass the committee report. There are things buried in there that a lot of members of Congress would absolutely tear their hair out. And back when I had hair, I would have done the same thing um, if, they, if they ever saw them. There are things buried in there that people who wrote them would be shocked to see actually made it into the report because they didn't mean it to make it into that. These things aren't vetted through a process. They aren't voted on by anybody. They aren't adopted as law. And they should have all the force that comes with not having been enacted into law. Um, I, I've written a lot of wonderful law review articles that have not been enacted into law. And they should have at least as much force as the committee reports. But your observation is critical in another way, and that is when you have to deal with the people who provide the money, there is a check on what you do. It is a check that is different from the check of lawmaking. It is important also because Congress has begun passing laws that remove that check. We have agencies like the Public Accounting Oversight Board and the, uh, uh, what is the, uh, C the CFPC they, that have no check now. I mean, essentially, the Congress has created agencies that are self-funding. Um, you ask what Congress does in terms of oversight for that? Nothing. You know, that, this, is, this is a serious problem. Congress had two real checks on how the other branches of government, well, three checks on how the other branches of government operate. One was the funding check, which is now lost for some agencies, and agencies are pressing to get out from under Congress's regulation. Uh, a second was the lawmaking function, which has been lost. And then the third was uh, the oversight of the officials who's actually in office. And, uh, you know, that's a separate conversation, what's happened with that. But uh, both the appointment and the impeachment sides of that are ones that, that there are questions about how they're operating at this moment. So your, your point, I think, is just another avenue for seeing where things have gone wrong. To, to amplify on what Ron just said, uh, I was a congressional staffer for several years. Uh, my experience is whenever there's any difference at all in the wording between the committee report and the statute, that is exactly what Congress did not want in the statute. Uh, you're in conference on a, on a bill that's moving through, uh, some side loses, and the joke is always, well, well, we'll put it in the conference report, because that's exactly what could not possibly have passed Congress. And so um, uh, I, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I often make that point, because there are some judges who mistakenly give great weight to these conference reports, and they, they should, the only weight they should be giving them is negative. In my view. Well, the judges often give them the weight they want them to have for the outcome that seems appealing for other reasons. And with that, thank you so much.